is uh, this shiur is dedicated to the memory of Liel Dina Bat Ephraim, and the topic of the shiur is uh, a couple of years ago, several years ago, we had a uh, <clears throat> we had another uh, incident. It wasn't in our community directly, but it was in the Jewish community in Brooklyn, and that was an incident of the Sassoon family that uh, lost several children in a terrible fire. I'm sure that you remember, everybody remembers that. And at the time, we also had a shiur about how to cope with tragedy, how to respond to tragedy. And some of the some of the guys in my um, in my uh, one of my chats suggested that we uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, one, some of the uh, folks in my chat suggested that I mention to people that they might also benefit from reviewing that shiur. I'll try to send out the uh, link for that shiur also to. Uh, uh, to facilitate that, uh, I have to I have to track it down. Um, I, I'm gonna make uh, Tara. I'm gonna make you also uh, uh, host. Maybe you can figure out where the noise is coming from that I can't. Okay, I'm gonna put you to, as the host. Okay, let's see if that helps. You're the host now. See if you can figure out how we can manage the sound in the background. I'm not sure. Um, so we're going to, uh, this shiur is a little bit different. This is not going to be about coping with tragedy, which was the topic of the previous uh, class that we gave when we faced uh, a tragedy. But this is going to be about a question that was raised this year in the context of this particular tragedy, which is what really is the role uh, of Hashem in tragedy? When something like this happens, uh, to what extent do we attribute that to, to God? To what extent do we, uh, do we blame we could say, or do we uh, do we credit or blame or assign responsibility to Hashem for the bad things that happen, for the good or the bad things that happen, and to what extent uh, is it a matter of uh, human uh, human involvement and human action? Because in uh, in our case, the uh, in our case, obviously, uh, in the most recent tragedy. Uh, the, in, in the tragedy of Liel, we, uh, the, the event took place as the result of uh, human action, as the result of, uh, of a drunk driver who uh, was irresponsible and who brought about her death. And that, that makes uh, attributing the, uh, tr- the tragedy to Hashem more problematic or more complicated um, because we, uh, we can see straight away that there was human involvement uh, in the uh, in the situation, maybe we can. I, I see who the person is that the source is coming from, but I can't mute them. Maybe you can figure out a way. Um, uh, so, in addressing this, uh, in addressing this tragedy, obviously we have to uh, we have to we're confronted with the reality that uh, that the cause was uh, at least indirectly. Insofar as we can perceive, insofar as we can process and we can observe, uh, the cause has human involvement, and uh, and uh, and the uh, and a human action was what directly brought about the tragedy. So how do we how do we understand the role of Hashem in this kind of a circumstance, in this kind of a terrible situation? And the uh, and I think we should preface whatever we say and whatever we uh, whatever we suggest tonight. Uh, with the comment that, first of all, our ability to understand Hashem's ways, Hashem's wisdom, Hashem's plan, the way that Hashem runs the world is, is extremely limited. 
And so whatever we do say is always going to be tentative and it's always going to be with the understanding that it is, uh, you know, our finite minds attempting to grasp something infinite uh, and that ultimately is beyond, uh, is beyond our understanding. So whatever we're going to say is an attempt on our part to make sense uh, of something that is, uh, that the depth of which, which is really infinite and the depth of which is really uh, beyond our grasp. So we have, to, we have to have that in mind. Another thing that I just want to mention, and I think it's uh, critical, is something actually that Rabbi Biton uh, said years ago that I heard in a shiur from Rabbi Biton uh, years ago. I didn't have that many opportunities to hear Rabbi Biton speak because we were usually teaching uh, simultaneously. But uh, one occasion that I did have the uh, privilege of hearing him speak, he made an observation that I think was uh, very compelling. And that is that uh, oftentimes when it comes to the most difficult questions in life, uh, the answers that are the most appealing and that are the most satisfying uh, are, are not necessarily the answers that are true. And uh, therefore we have to be careful that if an answer seems to be just too good and just too perfect and just too satisfying, that uh, there might be something about it that is uh, less than authentic because reality and truth is oftentimes much more challenging and much more messy than we would like it to be. So if something just seems to fit like a glove and, and, and just seems to, uh, uh, to give us a perfect sense of satisfaction, uh, that should make us worry that maybe we're missing something. Maybe, uh, maybe it's too perfect. And, uh, and I think that that's something we have to keep in mind as well, that a true answer is probably not going to give us the kind of satisfaction that, uh, uh, that an imaginary answer would give. An imaginary answer would be tailored to make us feel good and to make us walk away from a situation which is indescribably painful and truly terrible uh, with a feeling that everything makes sense now and we're able to handle it and we're able to understand it and we're able to explain it. And uh, I don't think that we're going to ever reach that point. Uh, you know, aside from the fact that uh, I don't think that there's any answer to the why or to the how of a situation like this that is going to make us feel any better. Uh, there, there, there's no real, there's no answer that's going to uh, that's going to bring Liel back to us. There's no answer that's going to uh, undo the tragedy that's already occurred. It happened to be that on the same night that uh, that Liel that we we buried Liel here in Eretz Israel, there was another situation of a child who uh, died right here in Kiryat Gat in my own neighborhood. That same night they had the funeral here in uh, Eretz Israel. And uh, the circumstance was also uh, attributed to the, uh, to the negligence of a person. It was a two-year-old child, actually, who got caught in the strings of her, uh, of her jacket or her uh, sweater, you know, the, the strings that closed the hood of the jacket got caught on a slide, and she ended up being uh, killed by that, being uh, strangled by that. It was horrible. And the Ganenet, the lady who was in charge of the gun that day, was actually not really uh, licensed. She wasn't really supposed to be working there. She wasn't really authorized to be working there. She was filling in for somebody that day and uh, she wasn't paying attention. She wasn't watching. And as a result, this happened. And so she's in trouble for, for uh, her, her negligence in that regard. But they interviewed the father. The father is actually a big rabbi in Kiryat Gat. He's uh, one of the Dayanim, one of the judges of the Beit Din of Kiryat Gat. And they asked him and they said, are you angry? And he said, look, uh, I feel anger from time to time, but at the end of the day, uh, no matter how angry I am, no matter how many years they put this young woman in jail, no matter what kind of consequence she receives, it's not going to bring my daughter back. So, uh, so what, what kind of satisfaction does it really give? And I think that leads us to the, uh, the issue that on one hand, you know, we're tempted, to, uh, we're tempted to attribute things to Hashem because somehow that makes it feel meaningful to us. In other words, otherwise the loss seems senseless. It seems 
without any purpose. And if we can say that it was really Hashem, so that somehow means that that it has a reason behind it. And even though we can't discern the reason, maybe we can feel confident and we can be reassured that Hashem had a purpose in doing this, even if it is inscrutable to us. That's the, that's the, uh, the appeal of saying that it was caused by Hashem. On the other hand, we want to blame uh, human beings because in a way that get, gets Hashem off the hook. And we say, look, Hashem is good. Hashem is great. Hashem is kind. Hashem is merciful. Hashem would never do such a thing. A human being was really the perpetrator here. But then once we say that, we really say, so then, so then how can we possibly find any meaning in the situation? How can we possibly find any sense to it? How could it be that uh, Hashem allows the world to run in such a way that seems totally contrary to our sense of justice, to our sense of, uh, of kindness, to our sense of, uh, of what is right and wrong, to our sense of what is deserved and not deserved. And, uh, and, and that enters into a whole other realm of difficulty and problem that, uh, you know, that vexes us very greatly. And it makes things seem so uncertain and so unpredictable. Because what does that mean? That means that things can happen that are not directed by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Things can happen that are uh, contrary to the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's very disturbing as well. So how do we reconcile these two points? How do we reconcile, on one hand, our acknowledgement of Hashem's kingship and that Hashem is master of the world and judge of the world and that all things are in the hands of God, and at the same time to say that human beings have a role in the, uh, in the perpetration of evil and when, uh, and when something happens that is truly unjust and something happens that is truly wicked, uh, that human beings bear the responsibility for that. How do we reconcile this? And that's really the topic of this shiur. It's less about how to cope with tragedy. Like I mentioned, that, that we discussed in the shiur several years ago and I wouldn't just want to rehash what we said then. I wanted to answer the question that people raised this time around. The question that people raised this time around was how do we see God, uh, how do we understand that human beings uh, caused a tragedy, but at the same time uh, believe that somehow this fits in to the divine plan. And I, I want to mention that um, there's that obviously one of the principles of Judaism, one of the fundamental uh, assumptions and, and premises of all of Judaism is that human beings have free will. We have a free choice. We have the capacity to uh, decide to do what is right or to do what's wrong. And... Uh, and, and in a way, that's, as I said, very frightening, the idea that we are independent actors, that we have the ability to affect the world uh, autonomously, not by the grace of God, not necessarily with the agreement of God, even against the commandment of God, we can act, we can behave as we know. The, the, our Tanakh, our Torah is full of people who acted contrary to the will of God and contrary to the command of God and, and, and received uh, and were held accountable for that. So we know that that's true. And, uh, and somehow that doesn't mean that God is not in control of the world. Somehow that doesn't bother our Nevi'im, it doesn't bother our prophets, it doesn't bother our Chachamim, it doesn't suggest that Hashem is not in control of the world. On the contrary, we still affirm that God is in control of the world. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we have to say that there's something good about tragedy, that God wanted this to happen, that God willed for this to occur? Because it's, it's, it seems impossible for a rational mind to, uh, to accept the idea that Hashem would will for such a horrific, senseless tragedy to occur, it would somehow be easier just to say that a human being did it, um, but that at the same time seems to take away from uh, God's mastery of the universe. Uh, if, if we look at, uh, there's actually a chazal, there's actually a midrash, very famous midrash that says that when Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, 
created Adam Rishon, the first man. He took him around and he showed him, he gave him a tour of Gan Eden. He showed him the beautiful trees and everything that Gan Eden had to offer. And he said to Adam Rishon, I want you to see how beautiful my creation is. I want you to see how wonderful my creation is. Be careful not to ruin it. She'im kilkalta, because if you ruin it, en nobody's going to come fix it after you. And that seems to suggest that Midrash, which is actually quoted in the Mesilat Yisharim, it's actually quoted by the Ramchal in the famous Mesilat Yisharim, the Path of the Just, which is probably one of the core ethical texts of Judaism that we all study. He quotes that in the beginning to tell you that, look, we have a responsibility for perfecting the world. There's the potential in our hands to ruin the world. And we, can't, we don't have a guarantee that Hashem is going to step up in every situation and is going to pick up after us. He's going to clean up after us, after the mess that we've made. And this is the reason why we see that throughout the Torah, we punish wicked behavior. We, we hold people responsible for the things that they did wrong. And we never find in the words of our Chachamim or in the Tanakh that Hashem, uh, that, that we exonerate somebody or that we uh, justify what somebody did or that we consider it an ad- endorsement of their bad behavior or their criminal behavior that, uh, that, that Hashem uh, willed it or that it was meant to be. We never find throughout our Tanakh or anywhere in our, the writings of our sages any suggestion that this justifies uh, a tragedy, that Hashem willed it, so therefore a holoca- the Holocaust was, uh, was good because, uh, I mean, I'm using an enormous tragedy. Nobody ever would say, it's, it's good, the Holocaust happened because, uh, because that was Hashem's will. Uh, we, we would never say such a thing. We, don't, we, we recognize that the Holocaust was probably one of the most evil and horrific and uh, tragic uh, events in all of human history. Forget about Jewish history and all of human history, one of the worst and most terrible things that ever occurred. And uh, nobody says, well, Hitler was doing the work of God. It was God's will. So therefore, uh, Hitler is a great guy. Nope, nobody would say that. Or, or, or that Hitler is a tool in the hands of God and then it's okay. There are some people who might suggest that. But I think that for the most part, most of us agree that the proper, I would say 95% of people agree that the proper attitude towards the Holocaust is to condemn it and to see it as the worst evil and to uh, seek to do everything in our power to prevent such a thing from ever happening again to any group. Uh, Jews, obviously, our first responsibility are brothers and sisters, but uh, beyond that, uh, that it should not happen anywhere in the world, such a, such evil genocide, and that we recognize that it, it gives us a responsibility and a mandate to fight against that kind of, uh, uh, anything that seems to even suggest that uh, somebody might intend to uh, commit genocide at all, let alone on the scale that it was uh, perpetrated in the times of uh, the Holocaust. So I think that that's understood by most, and the people who suggest a kind of a mystical way of, of saying that it was meant to be, and that, uh, and that Hitler really uh, was doing something that was uh, part of God's design are doing that because it makes them feel better because because part of what because attributing too much significance to human activity uh, actually is scary to tell you the truth it's actually scary because it means that things are unpredictable it means that things are out of control that God actually cedes to us he gives to us this independence to act even in a way that is very evil and, uh, and that could be frightening. But it also could be true because that's what it means to have free choice. Now, I wanted to mention, and, and in fact, the Rambam, 
uh, Maimonides in his book, The Moran of Uchim, which is a book that's studied usually only by people who are interested in very weighty philosophical discussion, but he makes the point there that almost all of the rabbis that come after him quote, because it's so important. And one of the things he talks about is the types of evil in the world, the types of bad things that happen in the world. He says some things happen as a result of nature. Thankfully, they are relatively few. They are relatively few and far between. The things that happen as a result of nature that are truly tragic, they do happen, but they're not that common. Most of the time, nature works in tandem with us, works to support us and to help us, sustain us, and not against us. But he says the majority of things that happen in the world that are bad are caused by people. They're either caused by you to yourself because you make bad choices that result in harm to yourself, whether unhealthy choices, unwise choices, poorly considered choices, irresponsible choices, whatever they are, or uh, things that we perpetrate against other people, that we, we act against other people that affect people in our circle of influence or even beyond. And these things, the Rambam says, you can't turn and blame them on Hashem because they are actions that were taken by an individual or by a group that had free choice, that had the ability and the autonomy and were given the God-given freedom to act on their own, uh, you know, based upon their own inclinations and their own choices. And therefore they bear the responsibility of the impact of that. Now, is that very reassuring? Does that tell us, therefore, what, what about the outcome of that? What do we do with the outcome of that then? What does it say about uh, Hashem's plan? Now, I just want to mention uh, in this connection that, that it so often happens, and perhaps this is part of Hashem's plan, that when we deal with questions and when we're struggling with questions of great difficulty, we find something in Parashat Shavua that helps us. And, uh, and, and in the story of Yosef, there's something really remarkable because you actually have a case in point. You have a case in point from Torah of people who did something bad, something that's regarded as bad. The brothers who sold Yosef into slavery uh, did something that is uh, criticized and is condemned. Even the later Nevi'im say, how could you sell a tzaddik for shoes? You sold a tzaddik for nothing. So they're criticized. The martyrs, the Asra HaRugei Malchut, the 10 martyrs, it says in the Piyut, it says in the, uh, in the, uh, the hymn or the uh, poem of the Asra HaRugei Malchut, that the, that the sin that they, were, uh, that they were killed for was the sin of uh, selling Yosef into slavery uh, that happened so many generations before, meaning it was considered to be bad what they did. And yet what happens when Yosef first reveals himself to his brothers, what does he say to them? He says something really remarkable. He says, Don't be sad and don't be angry that you sold me here. Because it was for sustenance that Hashem sent me here. So Yosef is speaking directly to our situation. He says to them, don't be upset and don't be sad that you sold me because it was for good. It was to save people. I ended up being able to save people. And in yesterday's parasha that we read, Yosef says it again because the brothers come to him and they are really feeling contrite and they're really feeling uh, uh, regret over what they did and they're begging for forgiveness. And what does Yosef say to them? Atem chashavtem you thought to do evil against me, but Elohim But God made it into something good. He calculated it to be something good. So it's an incredible thing. Yosef is basically speaking exactly to the discussion that we're having right now, exactly to the issue that we're grappling with right now. And he seems to say two different things because he says, you did something wrong. You thought something wrong, uh, but Hashem turned it to something good. And he says, he says, don't be sad and don't be angry. So the Abarbanel, one of the great Sephardic commentators on the Torah, speaks about this. 
And he says, how could it be? This is what the Abarmanel says. He said, how could Yosef say to his brothers, Al don't be sad. Don't be upset that you did such a horrible thing. You subjected your father to so many years of suffering. You left your brother basically for dead or for to, to be completely disconnected from his family for the rest of his life. You sold him into slavery. What worst thing could you do? It's like, it's as good as getting rid of him, wiping him out of Jewish history forever. And he says to them, don't be upset that you did that. Really? They shouldn't be upset that they did it just because by accident, as far as they're concerned, from their perspective, they couldn't have known that it would turn into something good. How can we exonerate them? How can we, uh, how can we, uh, hold them, not hold them accountable for something that they did, uh, just because the, by chance, from their perspective, it turned out to be something good? How is that possible? So the Abarbanel says there are two different things. There are two different ways that we look at a situation. One, when it, when it comes to human activity. And I like the way that he approaches it. He says there are two different elements. One element is my own personal teshuvah, my own personal sense of responsibility, my own personal uh, accountability and role in the unfolding circumstance. He says that, he's not talking about that. Yosef is not saying that they shouldn't introspect, that they shouldn't reflect on what they did wrong, that they shouldn't make sure that it never happens again, that they shouldn't try to understand what led them to that point. And that's a whole other discussion about the story there, what they should and shouldn't have done. He says, but there's a different thing, which is the result afterwards, the consequence afterwards. Occasionally, we can see that even an action that was undertaken in bad faith, something that was a mistake, something that was an error of judgment, can turn out that the consequences evolve into something that turns out ultimately, after a while, to be positive. Sometimes it can turn out to be positive. And that, I think, is really where Hashem comes into, pick, into the picture, that we don't exonerate a person for their bad actions. We maintain that a person can indeed commit an action, commit a, uh, commit a crime, can be 100% responsible. It's against Hashem's commandment. It's a, against Hashem's will. Hashem expresses His will to human beings in the form of laws because we have free will. He doesn't express his will to us in the form of controlling our actions because controlling our actions would rob us of free will. He expresses his will to us in giving us morals, ethics, and laws that we're supposed to adhere to and that we choose consciously to adhere to. And when a person doesn't do that and they wreak havoc and they cause destruction, they are the ones who are doing that and who are responsible for that. Now, it could happen that the outcome of that destruction and that irresponsibility and that, and that ruinous behavior could be that it turns out to be good because the way that Hashem's, and this is where Hashem comes in, the way that Hashem's plan and Hashem, Hashem's design in the world operates is that He's able to, nothing we do can thwart His ultimate plan. Nothing that we do can thwart his ultimate design, which means that if Hashem's plan was for things to reach a certain destination, a certain ultimate result, a certain eventual climax that Hashem was trying to lead the events to, then the fact that an individual acts in con contrary to that will not prevent God from reaching his ultimate purpose. But that doesn't mean that the individual choice, that the particular evil deed of a human being was good in the eyes of God or was endorsed or was part of God's plan. What it means is that God's plan can always recover. God's ultimate design 
is, uh, you know, is impervious, is able to rise above and transcend and survive even the bad choices of individuals. And this is really what Mordechai says to Esther. Mordechai says to Esther, listen, this is your chance to rise up and save your people by intervening with Achashverosh. And if you choose not to, so God will find another way to save the Jewish people. He's not going to let the Jewish people perish. But that doesn't necessarily mean you are going to be instrumental in the Geulah. You might disappear then. But that, that his plan will still stand. Hashem's ultimate promise to the Jewish people that they won't perish still stands. He'll find another way to bring about the redemption. So that means that Esther's choice could have led to her own disappearance from the scene and the disappearance of her entire family. That could have happened. But she chose to do the right thing. She chose to do the heroic thing and to be the instrument of God's redemption. In other cases, a person might choose contrary to what God would like them to do, to what God would expect from them. And so therefore, they, they may even work contrary to God's plan, and yet God's plan ultimately prevails. That's the idea of how God's plan fits in with human choice. It doesn't fit in because that means that every human choice is God's plan. It fits in because God's plan is able to recover and to reroute itself around the bad choices of human beings, even as we have to suffer from the terrible uh, short-term and even sometimes long-term outcomes of very, very bad choices of people. And we see that, for instance, in the, uh, and, and so in this particular case, uh, the, the person who, uh, who, uh, who caused this tragedy to happen is the drunk driver who, who uh, made the choice to be irresponsible and to act in a way that endangered the lives of potentially many, many people. And uh, our dear Liel was caught up in the, uh, in the bad choice and, and the criminal action of this individual. And, uh, and what does that mean for us? Well, we have actually a precedent for this as well, which is in, the, uh, in Parashat Shofetim, at the end, in the, in the book of Dvarim, we read that, uh, uh, that if, a, if a murder occurs and, uh, and, uh, and that murder is, a homicide victim is discovered and that homicide victim, uh, we don't know who committed the murder. So we basically determine what is the closest city. This is described in the end of Parashat Shofetim. We find the closest city and we bring the elders of that city and we bring a calf and we come to an area, to a valley that has never before been worked on. It's never had any agricultural um, work done. There's never been anything productive or fruitful from that area. And we decapitate the calf and we say, and we never again use that piece of land. And the elders wash their hands and say, Yadenu lo et lo ra'u that our hands did not spill this blood and our eyes didn't see it. And the Kohanim ask that Hashem atone for the terrible loss of this life because any life that is lost is a world that is lost. Any life that is lost is an indescribable, unique treasure that can never be replaced. For us, can never be replaced in this world, the treasure that's lost. And so this mitzvah is done and the rabbis ask, why would we have the elders come and wash their hands? Do we really think the elders were responsible for this homicide? You think that the elders, the rabbis, or the leaders of the community were responsible for an unsolved homicide in the middle of the street that was between two cities and we don't know who, who, who did it? You, why would we blame them? Why would we think to blame them? So the answer is, the rabbis say what they meant was, we didn't neglect 
this individual. We didn't let him go without, we didn't know he was in town and let him go out without an escort, without food, without whatever he needed to safely get home, this traveler. So meaning the elders are saying, what that shows you, not that, that is that anything we do that fosters a culture that is, that lacks a sensitivity to the sanctity of life means that we are in part responsible for things in the society that occur that violate the sanctity of life. And if we, and what we do, in other words, if the values of our society um, are corrupt or if the values by which we live are not uh, true to the will of Hashem, so that creates an atmosphere in which people take liberties with their behavior that potentially can lead to death and destruction and harm to other people. And the elders are the ones, in other words, it goes all the way back to the top. We say to the elders, you guys might have been able to do something. You might have been able to foster a greater sensitivity to the needs of human beings, to the sanctity of life, to safety, to the dangers that threaten life and done something. And in this particular case, we know that that street, Peninsula Boulevard, is a danger zone. They've been trying to get red lights there for a very long time. Obviously, drunk driving is something that's a terrible uh, malady that needs to be fought against, needs to be condemned, and needs to be punished to the full extent of the law until people get into their heads that they're taking other people's lives in their hands. But until we care about that enough to act, so it's, it, this is called as a sin that happens ba'avonador, something that happens because of the sin of our generation, that our, that our generation is so selfish that we've, we've found ourselves so mired in our own needs and interests and immediate conveniences that this guy jumps in a car thinking, what's the big deal if I drive a little bit inebriated? And he causes a, a, an angel, somebody, a, a young woman who had her whole life ahead of her to, uh, to lose her opportunity and her potential to make an impact on this world. And we know it was such a tremendous impact that she would have made. And this person in one act of irresponsibility and stupidity and selfishness took that away. So what does that mean? That means, yes, he's a horrible person and he deserves to be punished, but it means that we as a society have to take it upon ourselves. And that's what we learned from that mitzvah of the Egla Ufa of the decapitated calf incident in the Torah, or the mitzvah in the Torah, that the elders say, are the leaders doing enough to instill in the people, in the citizens, in the society, that life is sacred and we cannot take liberties with life, that every life is unique, is an entire world, and we can't allow a person in their irresponsibility to play games uh, with the lives of other people. This is where we come in and where we have to correct our behavior and our values. So can we be angry at God? Can we blame Hashem? Hashem is responsible only in the sense that you can blame someone who designed a car uh, for car accidents. You can blame somebody who designed uh, uh, an airplane uh, for airplane accidents. In other words, the, once the, the Hashem created us and created a world and gave us a tremendous responsibility, sometimes a responsibility that's very daunting and very scary, and we have the power to either do tremendously 
positive things. And I think that's the, that's the upside. The upside is tremendously positive things that we can do with our independence and our autonomy and our freedom of choice. And we can create a world that is in harmony with the values that God wants to teach us, or we can create, we can destroy the world and corrupt it and pervert it and bend it into something uh, far from what Hashem's will is. Now, does that mean that that will thwart Hashem? No, ultimately Hashem's plan will prevail. But in the short term, and insofar as the lives of the people who have to endure uh, a society and have to be subjected to a society that is uh, not living in consonance with the values of Hashem, then those, that suffering, there's no, there's no way to alleviate it other than to recognize that human beings have the power to change the direction in which the society is going and make it better. Um, and and I, I wanted to comment also just on, so then what do we do? In other words, the positive, the negative, obviously, uh, so to speak, is that we have to hold people responsible for their own evil actions. The positive is that we have a tremendous power to do what is good, to do what's right, to make things better, to ensure that such things don't happen again by advocating. If we don't advocate, it's like people don't want to advocate. They don't want to advocate. They don't want to get involved in political advocacy. Some Baruch Hashem, many members of our community have become very, very active in political advocacy and fighting for what they believe in and fighting for changes that they want to see. And I think that that's, that is a wonderful thing, whether you agree or disagree with the particular agenda. It's not about politics. It's about recognizing that if we don't advocate for what we believe in and we don't advocate for the values that we want to see represented in our societies and our communities, it's not going to happen by itself. And, the, and, and that's the responsibility Hashem gave us to build communities that, are, that operate in a, matter, in a manner that is consistent with our values, just like it's our responsibility personally to live our lives in a way that's consistent with our values. But I wanted to conclude just with a word about, uh, about mourning, because obviously this is all happening uh, in the aftermath of a horrible tragedy, uh, losing a beloved young woman, uh, a, a girl really, but uh, someone who has already passed bat mitzvah, so I'll call her a young woman, someone who was dedicated to all the right things, who cared about all the right things and whose values were, were aligned, were truly aligned with, with the will of Hashem. And therefore, that makes the tragedy enormous. That makes the tragedy immeasurable. Um, in the Torah tells us that we should uh, be limited in our mourning. It says, Lo velo kocha It talks about not going to extremes in mourning, wounding ourselves, balding ourselves, things that they used to do in ancient times. And the Torah precedes that by saying, The reason why you shouldn't do such things is because you are children of Hashem. And as children of Hashem, uh, you should never go too far uh, in your mourning for a loss. And the Ramban, Nachmanides, says something really beautiful there. That's in Parashat Ra'eh, by the way. He says something truly beautiful. He says that the reason we don't engage in excessive mourning is because we recognize that as banim atem l'ashem eloichem, we are children of God, that means we have olam That means we have the next world. And there's a limit to the extent of our sadness because we know that the person who departed from this world is going to live on in the next world. In other words, that they continue to exist. They continue to live. There's a story about Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, not the story that I told at the Levaya that I, I hope everybody was able to hear because I think it's so important in giving us perspective. But Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, towards the end of his life, he was very, very concerned. He was very, very emotional that he was about to die. And his students came to him 
And he said, look, I'm going before Melech Malchei Amlachim. I'm going before Hashem. He's going to judge me. I can't give him any excuses. I can't bribe him. It's not like going before a human judge. I can get a good lawyer or anything like that. And he says, and also there are two paths ahead of me. There's one to Geinom. There's one that's the bad path, going to the bad, uh, bad place. And there's one that's Ligan Eden. There's one that's to the good place. And I don't know which one I'm going on. And that was Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai saying that. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai saying, I don't know what my fate is going to be. Right? But of course, but Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai is a different story. Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai is a person who had lived a very long life and perhaps felt that he had made choices along the way that it were better or worse. He, was, he wasn't sure where he stood in the eyes of Hashem. But we know that Liel it was a girl who, she was a girl that had not uh, done anything in her life that, uh, that she needed to be ashamed of. She was a girl who really was, should, should have been proud of everything that she did. She was a force for goodness uh, in her family's life, in the community's life, in every institution with which she was associated. She was seen as a, as a source only of goodness. And uh, we're confident that her existence in the presence of the Almighty and Olam Abba is more real and more pure than our own existence. And we should recognize that all is not lost, that our emunah is that her existence goes on, her connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu continues on. And the ultimate expression of that was her concern with Shema Yisrael. The Shema Yisrael is really the foundation of everything. The Shema Yisrael is the greatest zechut. That means that the, that the soul is linked to an understanding of Yichud Hashem, of oneness of God, and that is the, uh, that's the essence of Judaism. That, that was at the, at, at the core of her being. And we know that her existence continues on. And that is the ultimate comfort to us. All is not lost. And we also have an emunah that we do meet again, that this is not the end. There is such a thing as tchiyat metim for the tzaddikim. And certainly uh, she is one that we expect for Hashem to uh, reunite us with in the future. So I think that as terrible, and I think that's the real comfort. The real comfort isn't that we can't say anything about what she could or couldn't have done in this world. We unfortunately won't get the opportunity to know that because her life was stolen from her uh, too early. And, uh, and so we don't know what she could have done had choices been made differently. Uh, we can't, one of the things that we can't do uh, but, but, but we do, what we do know is that what she, the way she lived was, was a zechut for her, for her family, for her community, and that her place in Olam Abba is not, uh, is not something we have to worry about. We know that her existence, the existence of her pure neshama goes on, and that's why we always say hashkavot and all of these prayers. It's not because the person needs the hashkava. Hashem knows what he's doing in Olam Abba. He doesn't need us to say hashkava for the person. The reason why we do it is to remind us that the person lives on, to remind us where the person is, that they're not lost. Um, in the case of, uh, uh, so the question was asked, what about the idea that it's been determined that your birth when you will die or that you fulfilled your mission? So this gets into another area of theology. It's a little bit of a side uh, area of theology. It's important maybe to mention, but one of the, and, and I guess it ties in with what I had said before, that Hashem's plan accommodates every uh, rerouting that's necessary. So we know that um, one of the dilemmas or one of the difficulties in thought about Hashem, which is a, a difficulty that is, not, is insoluble, we have no way to solve it, is that Hashem knows the future, but he doesn't determine the future. 
which means that we have free choice, even though Hashem knows what's going to happen. Now, to us, that seems to boggle our mind, because if Hashem knows what's going to happen, doesn't that mean that it's predetermined? But since Hashem exists outside of space and time, there is no before and after. There is no past, present, and future to Hashem. It just is. It is what it is. So his knowledge of the future doesn't mean that he saw in advance what you were going to do and predetermined your choice. It means that he doesn't have a concept of in advance or before or after or during. That's something that we experience in the physical world. Hashem is outside of that. So he doesn't experience that. He doesn't, he's not limited by that. We can't, under, we can't explain it any better than that. The Rambam was the one who first said, look, then to know the answer to this is impossible because only Hashem, that would be to know Hashem's mind and we can't know Hashem's mind. But what it means when it says that uh, it's predetermined is just a meaning to say that obviously Hashem knows all that's going to happen in the world. That doesn't mean that he determined for people to, uh, uh, to do bad actions in the sense that he caused it or willed for it to happen. It means that he was aware that that was going to happen. He knew that it would happen, but using a term like Hashem knew in advance is again, making it seem like Hashem has a before, during, and after, which he doesn't have. So it's impossible for us to reconcile. Even, even in the Mishnayot, in Pirkei Avot, uh, uh, Rabbi Akiva says that you know freedom is given, but everything is foreseen, and we don't know how to reconcile those two concepts. So, so that's a whole other area of theology. From our perspective, living in this world right now, we have to recognize the impact that our choices have on the world, the direction of the world, and that means both negative and positive. So if a person is making a choice, I think if the, the, the greatest zechut, the greatest uh, uh, mitzvah that we can do uh, in honor of the El and really to learn what, what we can from this horrible tragedy is to think of ways that we can cultivate a greater sense and a greater sensitivity for, uh, uh, towards other people, towards the impact that our choices have on other people, towards the sanctity and preciousness of life, of every moment of life, and to do all that we can to raise awareness of that in our communities. Because that is what will be the deciding factor between somebody getting behind the wheel when they shouldn't be or not getting behind the wheel. That could be the deciding factor between somebody engaging in a behavior that is harmful to themselves or others or not engaging in that behavior. And that hopefully would inspire people to do, the right, to do things proactively and positively to make the lives of others better and to ensure, uh, the, the, uh, you know, to ensure that people's needs are met and that people's uh, dignity is preserved and that the sanctity of life is promoted and appreciated and embraced. And that that's the greatest mitzvah that we can do in the wake of this tragedy. So as I said, nothing is going to uh, bring back uh, a, a pure soul that has departed from us, but we don't blame Hashem. We blame human beings, the human actors. We know that Hashem on his side has embraced her neshama in Olam Abba and is taking care of her and she is in the best of hands. And we also know that in the future, Bezrat Hashem, we will have the opportunity to be reunited. But in the meantime, here on earth, we've lost or I should say we haven't lost. Uh, a precious life was, was stolen from us uh, in a violent and unjust way. And we should recognize that and we should take it upon ourselves to ensure that such things don't happen again 
and that whatever is in human power to correct and to improve and to raise awareness and to heighten our consciousness of the proper values and the proper uh, sense of responsibility we should have for one another, that is what we should do uh, in the wake of this tragedy and that is what Hashem expects from us. As I said before, how does Hashem's plan manifest itself when it comes to us? It manifests itself in expressing to us the values and the mitzvot, the commandments, the laws, the expectations, the moral principles by which we should be living our lives. If we ignore them, we ignore them at our own peril. If we embrace them and live by them, we create a society that is true to God's wisdom and the values that he wishes to instill in us. And then we'll see much better outcomes. Uh, can Hashem work around some of our more foolish decisions? He can work around them, but that doesn't mean that we don't have to suffer uh, the outcome, uh, the result of the, uh, of the bad decisions as they are made. And Bezrat uh, Hashem, in the zechut of all the mitzvot that we do, in the zechut of the action that we take to uh, pursue the proper values, to, uh, to promote the, uh, the ideas and the principles and the, uh, the morality and the mitzvot and the Torah that really were all the things that Liel lived for, the chesed, the caring for others, the concern for others, the compassion. To the extent that we do that, I think that is the ultimate tribute to her memory. That is the ultimate zechut for her. And uh, that is one way we can try to, uh, we can try to uh, continue on her legacy and we can try to pull something positive out of the terrible wreckage of uh, a senseless tragedy. Um, and I, hopefully this sheds some light on the, uh, on the situation. I know that, as I said, it doesn't give us that feeling of, well, everything is under control. It was meant to be. Hashem did it, and we don't have to worry, and we don't have to ask any questions. It's the opposite. I'm telling you the opposite of that. I'm telling you that Hashem empowered us with a very dangerous power. And uh, uh, it's dangerous, but it's also magnificent. Uh, if we use it properly, it's magnificent. If we use it horribly and if we use it improperly, it's, it's very dangerous. And in the meantime, uh, we, can be, we can rest assured that HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu has Liel uh, close to him and that Baruch uh, Hashem, she is in the best place and that we can look forward in the future, Bezrat uh, Hashem, to seeing her again. If there are any other questions you want to send on the chat, we can certainly do that. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to stop the recording uh, in the meantime.